Good morning. Welcome to Kesed. Uh, my name is Danny. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to be sharing with you today. If this is your first time, don't trip out. Yes, you are in church. I know it's weird for some of you. I saw a few people earlier. They're like, I brought guests. They don't do this. And I'm like, perfect. That's exactly who we want to fill our church with, our people who are spiritually curious, people who have questions, and we want to set those people alongside people who are established and who are still on a journey with their faith, but, but, uh, but know God personally, and we just want to live within the tension that that creates because that's what it is to be in community. That's what it is to, uh, to be family. And so uh, if you're new, thanks for taking a shot, taking a chance, and and coming back to church or maybe trying church for the first time, you are welcome here uh, anytime. And uh, trust me, we've heard it all. So, so uh, any journey you have, there's, there's probably someone else here who, uh, who's had a similar one and has found this place to be home. Uh, we teach in something called series, and we're actually wrapping up a series today. And we're, uh, we're kind of processing this idea that this world that we live in constantly is throwing out this theory that, uh, that you need to be more in order to be satisfied, that you need to have more, do more, experience more, uh, become more in order to, to be the person you're supposed to be. We're going to talk just a second how God has an opposite, not theory, but I think fact, factual truth that you are actually okay just how you are. It doesn't mean there's not things that you want to work on or things that he doesn't want to journey with you with but that your value is, uh, is within you already because of how this God that we're going to talk about has made you. If the world revolved around that idea, we would treat each other differently. We would treat ourselves differently. Society would change because people would stop searching and seeking for more to uh, fill the void they have. And instead, they would be who they are as they are with a God who loves them. And they would love other people the same. So that's kind of what the series is about. Quick recap for last week. Uh, last week we talked about what Jesus says regarding that, the world's theory of more. And we were in the Bible in Luke chapter 15, and there's three different examples that Jesus gives. The first one is the parable of the lost sheep. The second one is the parable of the lost coin. And then the last one, the one we spent time in, is the parable of the lost son. We were talking within these stories about how they highlight a loving father who always chooses to close the distance no matter how far, and that sometimes the distance is small and sometimes the distance is, is, is not so far and sometimes it's incredibly great. Uh, Joe, uh, who just did the uh, service hosting for us, he's our kind of resident theologian, and uh, he came in my office after I preached the sermon and said, I just found out something really powerful about the prodigal son story and all of that in Luke chapter 15. And I was like, I already preached that. And he's like, I know, but it's so good. And I was like, well, that's not helpful at all. <laughs> and he was like, but I got to tell you anyways. And so he says, when you look at the three stories, the first one, they're stories about ratio and about how the father closes the distance and ratio and how basically God customizes himself to you. So the first one's the story of the lost sheep. And it's a ratio of he goes after one and leaves the 99. So it's 1%. He still goes after you. Then the next one's the story of the lost coin, and it's, there's 10 coins, but one's lost, so now it's 10%. And then the last one is the story of the lost son, and really both sons, the one who stayed home and the one who, was, who left that we call a prodigal, they're both lost, so it's, it's 100% distance. And in each story, the father closes the distance. So you may say, I've never been in church, and I don't know God, or you may say, I've grown up in church my whole life, and I still don't know God. It makes no difference what your spectrum of of distance is, the father still closes the distance. These stories are highlighting just that. 
They're teaching the words of Jesus. And that's exactly what he does. He teaches that the world's theory of more proclaims your mistakes and your shame are yours to bear alone. While the gospel message or the words of Jesus teach us to come alongside one another as he comes alongside us and so still sit inside our struggle that he bears with us. And that's the big difference in the two theories. One of them says you carry your shame and that's your place in this world. And the other one says you carry your struggle and that God comes alongside you and carries it with you and you develop and you grow and you repent and you learn and you develop and you grow and you repent and you learn and you are never where he left you when he found you. And these are, these are hard things because a lot of us have made some big mistakes. So you don't think of yourself as someone who struggles. You think of yourself as someone filled with shame. That's because you've listened longer to the theory of more the world has given than you have to the gospel loving words that Jesus has shared with you that he wants to be in it with you. So I just want to say one more time, because there's people in the room changing the room right now. Every one of these services have been completely unique. So we're just a little off book. Uh, Whoever you are, you messed up the room, so this is your fault. You, you believe the shame story far more than you believe the struggle story. And I guess I'm just here to tell you, uh, as, a, as a brother who struggles, that uh, that shame that has been spoken over your life, it's not true. It's not true. Even if it came, and we're going to talk about this, from someone that you care about, even if it came from someone who was supposed to take care of you, that shame that has been spoken over your life is not true. And I believe this message today is just for you and everybody else in the room, especially you who you don't think this message is for you. This is definitely for you. If you're like, nah, I don't have any shame. Awesome. Let's listen up and see what God says about that. <laughs> so we're going to close the series talking with you. Instead of last week, we talked about what Jesus taught. To close the series, we're going to do something different. We're going to talk instead about something Jesus was taught. This is a very kind of unique approach, but I think you'll find it biblically sound, and I think you will find it uh, incredibly relational. Uh, this came out of a space, I'm just going to be authentic with you, that I got myself into last week when I went to a really difficult therapy session. My therapist asked me some questions that I wasn't prepared for, which made me feel some feelings that I wasn't prepared for, which then made me process some stuff from my past that I wasn't prepared for, and next thing you know, I'm sitting in my office on Wednesday trying to prepare for you, lost in the midst of my own stuff. And that shame, struggle, tension shows back up. And so I, I leaned into the struggle and I asked Christ, I asked the Spirit, I asked God, what do you want to do for me? What do you want to do for people in the room? And I felt this sense of tenderness, that there was supposed to be tenderness about this message, not just for you, and I hope you pick up on that, but also for me, because this was what was given to me that brought great hope to my life and my heart. And so I preach it from a personal space, and I also hope you get to receive it there as well. So we're going to talk not about what Jesus t teaches, but about something Jesus was taught. Now, a little bit of foundational theology. We believe as Christians or Christ followers that Jesus Christ is God made flesh, that he is God touchable, that he is God relatable. This is known as the incarnation or the act of being made flesh. That's what this is known as. There's a couple verses that back this up. Hebrews 2 verse 17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Hebrews 4.15 adds a little bit of color to that, a little bit of layers to that. He says, for we do not have a high priest 
who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, look carefully, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus, as a human being, was experiencing his humanness in every respect, it says. Made like his brothers. This means he was born. It means he grew. It means he got tired. It means he got thirsty. It means he got hungry. And it even meant he died. This also means along the way, Jesus had to learn and so was taught. And many, many times when we connect to Jesus, we in churchdom connect with only the God side of Jesus. We don't talk very much about the human side of Jesus, especially about Jesus developing that humanity, growing like all the rest of us, experiencing everything you and I experience in this world. But it's true. Jesus was taught. Jesus' father was a carpenter, and that's what Jesus had to learn to be. I think people imagine Jesus at like nine years old, and dad Joseph's like, hey, we're going to make a table. And Jesus is like, I'm God. I know how to make a table. Boom, amazing table. No. No, Jesus had to be taught how to do all those things that his parents, that the elders in his community, that everyone around him was doing and learning. And he grew, it says, Luke 2.52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He increased in wisdom and in stature, which means Jesus had to be taught. So I want to show you something that ministered to me that I hope does to you as well. I want to show you something Jesus was taught regarding this pervasive lie around this theory of more that this world continues to tell us we need to be in order to be valuable. When Jesus was 30 years of age, he began his ministry. That's when he started and revealed himself to the world. But before it officially began, Jesus was baptized. Matthew 3, chapter 13, chapter 3, verse 13 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John, consented. At first glance, it seems that Jesus' baptism has no purpose at all. John's baptism was the baptism of repentance, but Jesus was sinless, although he was fully human and had no need of repentance. Even John's proclaiming this by being taken aback at Jesus coming to him. John recognized his own sin and was aware that he, a sinful man in need of repentance himself, was unfit to baptize the spotless lamb of God. But Jesus says, no, it must be so. Why? There's a myriad of theological reasons that people love to debate around this issue. I just want to point out one that jumped out to me that I think directly addresses this theory of more that the world screams into our lives. Look exactly what happens next when Jesus was baptized. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Look specifically at how God responds to the baptism of Christ. My beloved son is this man whom I am well pleased. The Greek word for well pleased, it's kind of an altogether phrase, means to enjoy or take pleasure in. 
So when Jesus gets baptized, he comes up out of the water and the spirit of God of all the things, the spirit of God, the voice of God could say to Jesus, it says, you are my beloved and I enjoy you. But this is the launch of Jesus's ministry. This is a world changing event. So why would this be the thing that Jesus Christ needs to hear? I think what happens next directly following the baptism may hold the clues to this. The very first thing that happens once Jesus is baptized, dries off, says hi to his friends, maybe has a meal, and then heads into the desert. For 40 days and 40 nights, it says that Jesus is tempted, that he is putting himself in the very human place of reliance only on God. And here in this place, that great accuser, Satan, shows up and he offers some great things. And they're all things regarding more. The first one is the lust of the flesh. It's the desire to feel more to meet that physical need Jesus has immediately. I have a need in my body. I have an impulse and I need to meet it. I'm starving to death. And so he takes that, those stones and, right, and their bread and he says all the things and it's beautiful for those of you who know it, but it's a desire to feel more. The next one is the pride of life and it's the desire to control more. This is the one out of the three, if I was gonna be honest, that I wrestle with the most. This is why I have a mean wife. Which was that whole announcement thing, by the way, they film announcements in my office. So I was walking by and I saw her film and I thought they were done. So I opened the door, but she just kept going along. And I was like, oh, no distraction, huh? So I just decided to distract her. And then she didn't, she didn't miss a beat. She just kept going. I thought she looked lovely as well. And, uh, but now you know what I have to deal with every day of my life. <laughs> no matter what I come up with, she just never misses a beat. In spite of my desire to control or manage or lead, I am still somebody who wrestles with the fact that I am partnered. And I think it's a beautiful thing for this very issue, but this is what Jesus faces like a lot of us do, the pride of life, the desire to control more. The last one is the lust of the eyes, and it's the desire to have more. Have more power, have more reputation, have more stuff. Satan is offering to help Jesus be the person he could be with more. And by doing that, he is testing whether Jesus believes what God just said about him when he came up out of the water. He is causing Jesus to consider if who God says he is is currently enough. Is he really beloved and does God really enjoy him as he is? How often do we consider lies like the one presented in the desert? If only I can have experience or control that, I will feel complete. How often do we build the entire movement of our life chasing these very lies, which are like the end of a rainbow. I don't know if you've ever looked it up, but you can never find the end of a rainbow. You, as a matter of fact, from above, rainbows are just circles over the horizon. They never have it. They don't have an ending. But we chase our lives, or we set up our lives to chase these kinds of things, to have more, to be more, to develop more, to even to help more. And it never fulfills fully because it's not what actually completes us in the first place. In the case of Jesus in the desert, he believes God and overcomes the lies Satan speaks over his life. But it's not done yet. For directly after the time in the desert, which is directly after the baptism, Jesus goes home to his hometown. He goes back to the place where the people were that, that he grew up around, to Nazareth. And there he does what Jesus does, which is attend a church service, attend a synagogue service. And if there was ever, by the way, 
because I read scripture, I'm told uniquely, but I try to slow down and really picture the, the story. And I think if there was ever like a drop the mic verse of Jesus, this would be the one where he did it the most. It's the beginning of his ministry. He just passed temptation. He just heard that God is proclaiming him his beloved. He goes home, getting ready to start his ministry. He does it right in his hometown. He goes to church and somebody goes, hey, Jesus, do you want to read from the scrolls? Which is a pretty traditional thing to do in a synagogue service. And Jesus says, sure. So they hand him a scroll and he scrolls through it. And then he gets to this verse and reads it right in the midst of all these people who knew him as a little boy. It starts off in verse 14 of Luke 4 and it says, And Jesus returned to the, in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and report, a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And this is the verse he chose to read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a hundreds of year old prophecy about somebody who's coming to save the world. And then it says in verse 20, here's the drop the mic verse, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And it's quiet like it is in this room. It says the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And just Jesus just waiting for right, just the right moment. And then he goes, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they were quiet. And they were pondering. And at first they were amazed, verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And then they realized just who he is. Is this not Joseph's son? I'm pretty sure he made a table for me. Are you telling me the kid that made a table for me is the Messiah? <laughs> you got to be joking. And they begin to stir themselves up like we do, right? When we're in that kind of space where we know better than the person in the room. And they begin to look at each other. And all of a sudden, Jesus decides to answer the thoughts of their mind, which is something he does all the time. By the way, it's something he's still doing in the room right now with you, which is why it feels like I'm reading your email. I'm not. It's not personal. It's Jesus. And this is what he says to them. Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. He starts to list other movements that happened inside other hometowns where prophets were pushed out, where prophets were ridiculed. He basically is telling them, you can't see what I'm about to tell you. He says, but in truth, verse 25, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. He says, you're not here to hear what I have to say. You're here to be an example of what happens when people stand up in their communities, especially communities that know them well, and they begin to transform, they begin to change their lives. And this is what happens time and time again. That community holds them to who they used to be, or in this case, who they thought they were. 
And suddenly they deny them the identity that God has given them. And that's exactly what these people did. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. So they moved from marvel to wrath in like three minutes. And I'm not talking just like, get out of church. You're no good. I'm talking frustration and murderous intention. Verse 29, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. That is a rough response to a sermon, I just want to say. People have asked me before, have you ever bombed one? And I'm like, not as bad as Jesus. (laughs) No one has ever tried to throw me off a cliff. They have tried emotionally to throw me off a cliff, but not physically like Jesus. This is a very, very powerful story because the second thing that happens, the thing after the temptation is that Christ starts his ministry in his own hometown facing unmet expectations of those he was supposed to be in relationship with, those that were supposed to know him, those that were supposed to put together all the dots and say, I don't ever remember any sin in his life. As a matter of fact, now that I think about it, he was always blameless, but they can't see him for who he claims to be because they are too blinded by their own identity and their own power construct of more that they've believed they've made. And you got to know churches are like any other, you know, institution. They're ran by people and messed up people lead messed up institutions. And without a lot of listening and without a lot of humility, they end up like all the other power structures that nobody wants to let go of. That's why I'm here to remind you one more time. This is like the tip of the iceberg of what church is supposed to be. This is barely even church. And I know I say that carefully. But you out in the world loving people, you developing yourself, you spending time with God, you studying his word, you being in relationship, not you sitting in the service for an hour and 15 minutes. That is only an hour and 15 minutes of church and it's supposed to be all of this life. And that's what Jesus does. He shows up in church and the church goes, nah, you don't fit in our structure. And actually, if you wanna be honest, basically the church said you don't fit here. I think that's still happening in many cases because we don't want to let go of the power. We want to stay under the lights. We want people to respect us. We want to be more than we are in order to be whole. And that's not what Jesus says. And so he allows them. I like that he allows them to drag him all the way to the edge of the cliff, by the way. I don't know why that's important. I don't even know what the message is in that. But I think it's really valuable that he, he allows himself to be grabbed and kind of dragged around. But right before they're like, we got you, we're going to kill the message, it says he just slips away. I wonder how many churches right now are grabbing and dragging and pulling Jesus, and he's still in it. He's still in the midst. He's still making changes. He's still blessing. But I'm here to tell you, you're going to drag him all the way to the cliff. You might just find that he slipped away. He might start using the lady down the road who's on her knees right now praying. He might start using the clerk at your grocery store. He might start using your employee, the one you don't like very much, who's always too, too kind. It can't be real. A teacher, your child, Your husband, God forbid. (laughs) Maybe even your mean spouse. (laughs) These people decide that Jesus is not enough and they reject him to the point of trying to kill him. How often do we believe lies like this about our own persons? We hear the rejecting words of people and we allow those to carry more weight than the living words of God. People tell us that we are less than, that we are unworthy, broken, not worth it. 
But Jesus says, and these are God's words from Scripture, that you are a child of God, justified, redeemed, made alive in Christ, sealed with the Holy Spirit, a new creation, chosen, adopted, forgiven, and free. Scripture even says that we are friends of Jesus. That's how much community and relationship that he wants with us. So here's my question. Here's where it got personal for me, and now I'm going to believe it's supposed to be for you. What if the start of Jesus' ministry, symbolized through baptism and the words of God proclaiming his great enjoyment in his son, was the final reminder and teaching for Christ of who he was called to be? What if it was taught to him right there as he came up out of the water by God that you are exactly as you are meant to be? And what if Jesus needed to hear that? That the Father's love and that the Father's acceptance is all sitting within this idea of being enjoyed. That the Father enjoys him for exactly who he is even before he has accomplished a single thing. Not even done anything else but just get baptized so that he, Jesus, can move through the very trials that are coming filled with spiritual and human warfare, proclaiming he is not enough. See, here's the thing about the two trials that Jesus faces afterwards, temptation and rejection. If you really look at any life that just goes completely sideways, it's usually temptation to have more or rejection from what someone thought they were going to have or be that destroys people's insides that cracks them to a place that they don't feel they can repair anymore. And so they begin to fill those cracks with all kinds of behavior, all kinds of things that numb that pain. Because I'm here to tell you, that sort of pain is unsurvivable without something numbing it on a regular basis, without some sort of reaching, without some sort of clawing, without some sort of pushing away of anything that reminds you or me of the stuff that I know I wrestle with that I just can't seem to overcome. And so I shift in my soul from struggling to being permeated with shame. And that becomes my identity. And so I numb more and I numb more and I numb more. And people come in and they try to save me, but I am hot with shame. And so they burn themselves on my life. And then after a while, they just stop answering the phone or returning the text. See, I believe that what is happening in this story is Jesus learning that he is enough just as he is. And I believe that same message is for us. Could it be said that in the same way that Jesus starts his, Jesus' start to his ministry, his purpose on earth is based on God's enjoyment of him, so our core purpose is based on God's enjoyment of us. And what if that's your first responsibility? Not even to fix the mess that is your life or someone else's, but instead to sit in the truth of that message that the Father, the one who created you, enjoys you exactly as you are before you have even accomplished a single thing. You see, that's why, listen, listen. There's like five of you right now fighting me, so we're just gonna, you and I are just gonna square up just for a second. The rest of you just pause. I know that in your head, you're struggling to believe that there is a God who created you. So I just want you to stay in your head, and I want you to realize that if that's true, then you are simply science sitting in a chair. That everything about you is just chemical. That the way you love, the people you, you interact with, it's all, it matters nothing at all. Or 
there is a God who loves you who somehow orchestrated through a friend to get you into this room so that you could hear a message that you are valuable just as you are. That his love overcomes all obstacles. It closes all distances, no matter if it's 1%, 10%, or an infinite amount. That he sees you, that he wants to dance with you, that he wants to be in relationship with you, and that at the end of the day, you are beloved. Those are the two real choices that we as humans have to face. Those are the two real discussions you need to have with God, whether it be sitting at a park or going for a drive or listening to music or getting into a, a debate with a friend or getting into a debate with God. You might need to have a, a, you might need to yell it out with him. And he can receive that, by the way. He's fine with that. But you need to face what it is that you are, which is beloved. And you've not been living that way. You've been living as somebody full of shame that numbs and numbs and numbs and numbs. And then you've been so shame-filled that you numb that you don't even return the people who love you, who want to be a part of the struggle with you. I know I'm this person. That's why I have a mean wife. Because no matter my shame, she dives into the struggle. No matter my, my incompleteness or insecurity, she comes close to me. And sometimes it's hurtful as she proclaims things in my life that I don't want anyone to know. I live my life underneath these lights, but not to her. She calls out all that stuff. She says, you think you're a big deal? I said, I do not. I'm incredibly humble. I'm probably one of the most humble people you ever met. We got into an argument one time and she called me a narcissist. And I said, I don't know what that is, but I'll be the best narcissist you ever met in your life. <laughs> you best believe it. We are supposed to be in community. We're supposed to learn to struggle with one another. But to do that, we have to see through this shame. We have to cleanse. And that is what the Spirit of God is doing right now. He does it through conviction. He does it through enlightenment. He does it through repentance. He does it through friendship. He does it through love. And he does it through proclamation that you are beloved. Jamie Winship said, sometimes the greatest act of worship is loving what God created you to be just as you are. That's a word right there. That's what this place is supposed to be about. And that's what our lives are supposed to be about. Loving God for how he made us. And when other people who are filled with shame like you come alongside your struggle, you see that shame in their life and you speak against it in the power of God and you remind them of Jesus who came up out of the water before he did anything and God said, you are beloved, I enjoy you. And we are Christians. We are Christ-like. And so he enjoys us. And so my hope is that today you reflect upon that space, that you sit with those emotions and those feelings and even the angst that I'm causing right now or the, even if you're frustrated or you're angry or you disagree, I'll work with that. I'm good. I just want you to know that you are beloved and that God has unbelievable things designed for your life if you can only receive it. So what I want to do, because I've talked a lot about the Holy Spirit, is give him a chance to do what he does. Now, if you are not a Christian, so maybe you're a mystic, maybe you're spiritually curious, maybe you're just somebody who meditates, you don't pray, bring it. That's fine. Holy Spirit can work with whatever uh, concept you have. But I am going to ask that you're willing to just sit in a, with a few minutes. And uh, I have a song that I want to sing over you that uh, I, think, I think 
might stir some thoughts. For those of us who've walked with God a long time, you know what this is about. This is about you. This is about what the Spirit's doing with you. It's about allowing this to really resonate with who you are and where you are and maybe even leave with a little bit of a, a little bit more purpose, a little bit more direction. So I'm going to ask your heads to bow and your eyes to close. And we're going to start off just recognizing the presence of God, recognizing that he has a story to tell with our lives, that there are some in this room who are, who are pondering what this really means, or maybe they're doing their best to shut it all out. But I believe in a living God who's really good at getting around our obstacles. So you go ahead and throw those up. You go ahead and raise up all your excuses. You've been doing this a long time. Maybe you're older and you're like, well, I don't really know if this matters. What, what, what more can I do? I'm just here to tell you that's just an excuse of so speak against it. I'm here to remind that you are beloved no matter your age, no matter your background, even no matter your lifestyle, that God loves you where you are, that you are valuable, that you are important, and that he wants to do incredible things with your life. And so God, from this space, I ask that you would just work, that the next five or six minutes would be more powerful than the last hour that we've been here, that it would be more than, than just another church ending, that it would be more than just pulling emotional strings, but that God, it would truly be the power of your spirit alive in our stories today. I pray over the teenagers in the room, Lord, those who, who thank God that, that, that you're not using them, that, that you're not revealing yourself to them, that Lord, you would meet them in the midst of their story. I pray for the young adults, those who are seeking to become who they are supposed to be, that you would give them a peace and a calmness. I pray for God, the, the, the older folks, the, the married folks, the single folks, I pray for God, the people who are so spiritually curious, they wouldn't even call it spiritual. I pray, God, that you would overcome any obstacle we can throw up in order for us to receive your beloved touch, your beloved love. I thank you that we are friends with you, Lord. I thank you that you minister to us now. We just lift this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I got a friend Closer than a brother There is no judgment Oh, how he loves me I got a friend is my strength He is my portion With me in the valley With me in the fire With me in the storm Little
is sufficient So come if you're needing Forgiveness and healing His mercy is enough Oh, and this is our hope The cross it is You're not alone. You're not. 
he loves one more time you believe it sing it come on yes he Never forget that. You're never alone. Have a great week.